Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics, and today I'm joined by Democratic candidate for Governor of Texas, Jeffrey Payne. Glad to have you on today, Jeffrey. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Jordan. Yeah, of course. So could you start by telling us a bit about your background? I was originally born in Maine, and at the age of three, my mother passed away, so my dad moved us down to Louisiana, North Louisiana. At the age of five, he... Um, left us, so we became wards of the state and um, went to live at an orphanage. It was my brother and I. At 15, I went into foster care and then uh, I turned out of that and um, went on to start my first business, which was a jewelry store. After five years of that, ended up working for the um, state of Louisiana for the Department of Labor. Was in charge of the EEOC program. The majority of my job with them was actually mediating cases uh, for the EEOC, uh, which gave me a lot of uh, time spending with people who were not happy with one another on both sides of the table and working out and discussing resolution. You know, and sometimes the resolution maybe took a week, sometimes it took a month, just depending on how um, upset they were about whatever the situation may have been. And after that, uh, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, and so I uh, lost everything and decided to relocate. I wanted to move to Texas. I had always wanted to move to Texas, and Houston had been inundated with evacuees from the hurricane, so I came to Dallas. I worked for a flooring company here, mainly because I just needed a job. After that, I took a year off, and then I began my own court reporting firm here in Dallas, and uh, we're now all over the state. And then um, right after that, went in and bought into a nightclub. Almost three years ago now, I bought out all the other partners. And now I'm the sole owner of the nightclub. And then right after that, I started a retail clothing line uh, store. Excuse me. After that, opened a property management company and a land holding company. So I uh, have those five businesses. And um now I've decided to run for governor. This is your first shot at elected office, right? Correct. Correct. So what do you think makes you qualified for the office of governor? Well, I believe with I have the skill set for it, especially where when I was working for the EEOC, for the Department of Labor, I know how the public sector of our world works. And also being able to mediate. Mediation is quite difficult. But having that experience under my belt and knowing that you are bringing in people that may not agree, but you have to come to a resolution with that skill set, just with the legislature and bringing them together rather than trying to divide them so that we have a common goal of assisting the individuals within Texas. And so having that skill set of bringing people who don't agree with each other and facilitating a resolution is what we need from the governor. And also, I believe the governor is the gatekeeper. When legislation is getting passed, you know, he has line item veto, he has veto power, so that things don't get out of hand, so we don't pass things like the bathroom bill, or uh, we're not concentrating on bills that really aren't problems, you know, rather than concentrating on what issues we, we truly have in the state, like education, immigration, healthcare, and so on. So with that, plus having the business knowledge that I have, being able to balance budgets, 
being able to make the tough decisions on what you can afford, what you can't afford, coming up with creative ways in which to expand the business or to work with employees, to actually harness the energy from the workers for the state in this case, which would be the case as governor, so that you're harnessing and you're giving them the tools they need in which to do their job and be successful on their end, whatever department they're working in. So I believe that I have the skill set in which to do that. As you mentioned, the Texas legislature has focused a lot on these kind of culture war issues like a bathroom bill, attacking sanctuary cities. And even though some of these efforts have failed, it seems like it's a real top priority for Republicans. What would your top priorities be in the legislature and how would you deal with these bills that you would obviously want to veto? First of all, you would hope to steer the legislature in the direction of the real issues that are facing us, like education. You know, we've gone down as far as we're ranked in the 40s now when it comes to education when compared to other states. I think we're 43rd, if I'm not mistaken. That being one of them, uh, healthcare being the other one, uh, women's access to health, proper health care, the general public's access to affordable health care, the livable wage, the gerrymandering issue. Those are the issues we need to worry about because those are the issues that actually affect Texans. And when you look at items such as, case in point, the bathroom bill, when we look at that one, we have to understand that before this bill was brought up, individuals who are transgender were already using the restroom that they identified with. So we created an issue where there was no issue. What we need to do is remind the legislature the true things that they need to be working on and using their time appropriately because a world-class education, it's not a left or a right or a Republican or a Democrat issue. It's all of our issue. The same with how we're going to deal with undocumented individuals, the same with health care, uh, the same with women's access to health care, proper health care. These are the issues that really we need to be focusing our time and coming up with resolutions and bringing everyone in. And my whole premise is a governor has to lead. And our current governor, you know, in a special session, he was very vocal about how he was making a list of people who didn't support his agenda. As a leader, you have to recognize the people who do support what you're advocating for and then reach out to those who don't so that you can bring everyone in and actually resolve the issue. Because until you do that, if all you try to do is be divisive and say it's our way or no way, you're not going to come to a resolution. That's why in the, I mean, the legislature, where they're having a brawl on the, on the floor. What good was that doing anyone in Texas? But that's what happens when you don't have a leader that is truly trying to bring people together and talk through things and speak through things and respect people with different opinions. Not everyone is going to agree with me 100% of the time, but I can't ostracize those people who don't agree with me. I need to bring them to the table, listen to what their ideas are, and they may have good ideas. And how can we work that into what I'm advocating for? And that's where we need to take the direction of our government that we're all working together. We're all here for the people. We are to work 
for the people. The people aren't supposed to be there working for us. And it's a cultural shift because we've been going down this road for a while now. I think you're absolutely right that most Americans don't think our top priority should be attacking the basic rights of marginalized folks out of hatred and bigotry. The top concerns are healthcare, education, a living wage. Ever since Bernie Sanders gained popularity, we've seen an increased support in progressive populist policies such as single-payer healthcare, tuition-free public college, and a $15 minimum wage. Do you support these policies? I do, and unlike our current president who said, you know, healthcare was going to be an easy fix. Healthcare is not an easy fix. It's going to take a lot of diving in, bringing in the insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies, the hospitals, those who are in the know in order to fix it, because I do believe in healthcare for all. And how do we fund it? How do we actually get it resolved? but without putting the state into heavy debt. And that's what we have to worry about. Because no matter what we do, no matter what we advocate for, we can't go in the hole doing it. What we also need to understand, kind of like with ACA, when you first roll out a plan, just like they did with Social Security, just like they did with Medicare, when you first roll it out, you have to tweak it along the way. Because what you first roll out, it may not work the way you thought it was. So what we have to do is still have the open-mindedness of we're going to roll this out. Wow, now we need to tweak a few things that didn't work the way we, the experts and I thought it would work. But then have the courage to make those tweaks so that we don't put the state heavily into debt. When we have college tuition for your bachelor's degree or you go to trade school, when we actually fund that for a student, or a young adult at that time. That way, when they leave school, they are not heavily in debt with student loans. When they're not heavily in debt, then they can become a revenue-generating individual in our state, putting money back into the coffers. Yes, on the front end, we paid for their public education, but then when they get out, rather than being so heavily in debt and probably having to either move in back home with their parents or living with three other people you know, in an apartment, they can have the opportunity to buy a home, buy a car. When they buy a home or they get their own apartment, then they have to purchase things to put in that house or that apartment. So they're putting money back into the revenue for the state. And we're providing them the education they need because some people don't go to college because they can't afford it. They can't get the loans or they can't get the scholarships. But if we offer that to them, then they become productive adults. And that's what we need, and that's what we should desire for everyone, that they can make it on their own. And when it comes to the livable wage of $15 across the board, though I agree with it, I think there's a better way to do it. $15 in downtown Dallas, that's not a livable wage. But $15 in some of our smaller counties maybe more than a livable wage. And we also have to look at how we're going to protect small business. Because the mom and pop operation, they may not be able to, and I'm saying in a smaller community, they may not be able to pay someone $15. We can make sure that we protect uh, small business, but at the same time, 
be able to allow people to make that livable wage. So these policies would probably be really hard to implement with the current legislature. Do you hope to, as you're running for governor, also advocate for other progressive candidates? Yes. And what we're, what we're doing right now, our filing time is right now to file for running for office. Once we know everyone who has filed, when we have a rally or a town hall or a community forum, be, be what it may be called, in that area, we're going to make sure that we reach out to the candidates who are also running so that they can be a part of when we're in town promoting our message, that they too can come in and promote their message as well. Because the only way we're all going to be successful is if all Democrats work together. And that's from the governor on down to city council. After the primary, we will then reach out and ensure that we reach out to everyone who made it through the primary. We're reaching more people by bringing the people, their supporters, to the same playing field as, say, my supporters, and so that we can cross-reference all of these supporters so that when they go out, they know exactly who they're going to vote for on the Democratic side. The state Democratic Party and the Democratic establishment seem like they've been hesitant to embrace your candidacy. How do you hope to get their support or are you comfortable running kind of a more independent campaign? They're also waiting to see who files. Now, during the primary, I understand the state Democratic Party does not actually endorse anyone, which rightfully so, because let's say they were to endorse me and someone else won the primary. Then they have to kind of get behind that person. And it's a little awkward for them because that's not who they supported for the primary. Once they see our campaign, that we are fully staffed, that we are going out there 90 to nothing, we have already been to so many places all over the state, visiting with people, and not just Democrats, but independents and Republicans and everything and everyone. Because we're running a an inclusive campaign, not just a let's just target Democrats or let's just target Latinos or let's just target uh, women. We're running an everyone campaign because I, I believe that people are to that point of we don't care about the D and the R after your name. What we care about is what are you able to do? What do you stand for? And how are you going to work for me? And I believe our current political climate, especially in D.C., is trickling down on how people are viewing the 2018 election. So speaking of D.C., how do you think as governor you would interact with Donald Trump? (laughs) That's a good question. You know, uh, I'm not a huge fan of his. However, like I said earlier, even with people you're not a huge fan of, you still have to work with them, especially since he's the president of the United States. I can't predict what he would do. I can't predict what he will do any given day. In fact, I'm, sometimes I wonder if his staff's even able to predict what he's going to do any given day. But I still have to work with him. And so I will always be respectful of him in the office and go up there and actually advocate for what we truly need here in Texas and what Texans truly need. And hopefully he'll give me the time to state our case. And also at the same time, it's not just with Donald Trump. It's also with our senators, with our U.S. representatives as well. 
uh, and working with them, no matter if they're Democrat or Republican. Kind of returning to your background a bit, if you Google Jeffrey Payne, almost every article about you will have something about you being the owner of a gay leather bar or a former international Mr. Leather. Has the focus on this bothered you? Um, it hasn't bothered me. The first day we filed our paperwork to you know, be a campaign and file for it, that we had a treasure, we had a company and so on. We came right out with it. You know, this is who I am. I'm gay and I'm married. You know, I owned a uh, leather bar. I was international Mr. Leather. I came out with all three because I thought, you know what? If you want to call them skeletons, these are my skeletons. I don't consider them skeletons. And as I've traveled, there was a young lady, Shirley, who was at one of our events. And she pretty much summed it up. She said, we don't really care about that anymore. It was nice, you know, when we first read about it for the first two or three weeks, but we care more about what are you going to do for us? How are you going to fix education? How are you going to fix infrastructure? Gerrymandering. Now, there are some people on social media that like to bring it up and, you know, they'll post a picture of me, you know, at the bar or something. It is what it is. I believe that most people just want to hear how you're going to positively affect their life. Shirley was the same one that said, you know what, I don't care who you sit across the dining room table from and ask how was your day. She goes, that doesn't affect my life at all. And so people move on from it. And that's why we kind of came out with it back in July. Let it do its, you know, three, four week news cycle. Now we, you know, we have nothing to hide. There's nothing to use against me. We just keep moving along. We keep telling our story. We keep telling people how we want to see the direction we want to see Texas move in. And they're listening. I think with each day, it becomes less and less and less of an issue. So what has it been like on the campaign trail? Actually, it's been a lot of fun. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'm not going to say it's not tiring, especially when you do like three events in a day. It's been fun because people are listening and people are asking questions. They don't just take surface answers. You know, they they want to know details. And that's what's interesting and that's what's fun about it. And listening to what their needs are because there's always those couple of issues that you get to a certain place where we haven't spoken about it before. We're well versed in it, but no one's ever asked. You know, we got a question the other night about workers' comp. You know, and the issues with workers' comp in the state of Texas. And, and that was the first time anyone had ever asked me about that. But that was important to this group of people that I was speaking with. So we're having fun. And it's wonderful to get to know so many people in Texas. It's just tiring and it's putting a lot of miles on my car. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So something I picked up from your bio, you seem very passionate about disability rights. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you've done there? My brother is very much hard of hearing, and he has been his whole life. Uh, my dad was as well. In 2010, I started an organization called the Sharon St. Cyr Fund, and Sharon St. Cyr was my mother's name, uh, who passed away when I was three. And what we do with that is we assist people with grants for the funding of hearing aids. Hearing aids, you know, they cost five to $7,000 for a pair. People who are not financially able we're able to step in and either supplement or wholly fund uh, the purchase of hearing aids so that they can continue to go to school and get the most out of school or continue working or finding a job and living day to day with the assistance of a hearing aid. 
And we also provide grants to organizations so that they're able to provide sign language interpreters, ASL interpreters, at their event. So those who are hard of hearing or deaf are also able to participate in the event. So that that one's very near and dear to my heart because it, it has affected my family. And then when I had turned 40, I realized that I had a hearing loss. I just got mine later in life than my brother and my father had. You know, I'm a, uh, a lip reader at this point. I do hear sounds. And if someone's speaking directly to me, I can understand what they're saying. But I do rely on uh, lip reading. When I look at the grand scope of things, and when I worked with the EEOC, we dealt a lot in ADA accommodations. It's just very near and dear to my heart because I believe that when we assist those individuals who have a form of disability, provide them a better quality of life, then they too can be proud of what they're doing, be proud that they're able to go to school or to work and not have a disability um, affect them in an adverse way but instead be able to overcome any obstacle. Personally, myself, as well as the government, should be assisting people who may have a disability so that they too can reach their potential, their full potential in life. As governor, what would you do to create greater accessibility and inclusiveness? What we need to do is make sure that those persons who have disabilities have access to the care they need. They have access to quality care. Let me say it better that way. So that they're not being turned away. They have affordable access so that they can receive the treatment they need. Even in school, if it's dyslexia. When you look at all the disabilities, the government is, I've always felt, is supposed to be there to help take down the barriers, not put barriers in their way. And as governor, to create a task force to see what do we truly need to ensure that the disabilities that Texans have are receiving exactly what they need in a prompt time frame, not years down the road, so that they can be proud and knock down the barriers that may exist out there for them in getting that treatment that they may need. So how have your marginalized identities affected your priorities? My disability, the fact that I'm gay, all of those things factor into it because I know what it's like to have been there. I know what it's like to have been growing up and being called names, being bullied. Different people react different ways uh, when they're either bullied or they're ostracized or they're ignored. I took it as that just the fire in my belly. You know, never tell me I can't do something because I will do everything to prove, prove you wrong. And I think that's how I handled it. And, you know, growing up in the children's home, in the orphanage, you know, Miss Lonnie was our cook. And she always told me, no matter what you do in life, Jeffrey, it's not what you get out of life that matters. It's what you give. That lived with me and that always stuck with me, that no matter what you do, you pay it forward and truly you pay it forward. And that's how it's affected how I have looked at policy and what's important to me. And when I look at uh, education and I look at child protective services and I look at adoption and I look at the children first, that is a priority to me because I've been in the quote unquote system. I was very fortunate, uh, but it was a very different world. This was back in the seventies and early part of the eighties. We need to make sure that 
we take care of our children first. I'm talking about the whole package. You know, they're educated, they're taken care of, they're fed, they have a roof over their homes. And in order to do that, you have to assist the parents as well to make sure that the jobs are out there and good paying jobs, fair paying jobs, so that parents aren't having to work two and three jobs and not be able to stay home with their kids because they can't afford to, you know, only work nine to five and be home with their kids in the evening. So you have to look at the whole picture of how you assist children and in doing that, you also have to look at how you're assisting their parents to ensure that that the government is providing what adults need so that they can in turn also provide for their child. One kind of family that we haven't seen provided for and parents we haven't seen compassion for are undocumented families and undocumented parents. And obviously in Texas, especially sanctuary cities have been a very controversial topic. Under both Donald Trump and Barack Obama, we saw a massive uptick in deportations without any policy to really provide a pathway to citizenship. How would you as governor work to support undocumented Americans and help them gain legal status. You know, we all understand that immigration is, at the end of the day, a federal issue. The governor can't just, you know, wave a wand and say, okay, here's your path to citizenship. But as governor, you have direct access to those in Washington who can pass these laws, who have done nothing for almost three decades, but kick the can down the road. And when you advocate for something, you have to sometimes scream and holler to get their attention. And that's what I'll be doing because we have around 2.2 million undocumented individuals just in Texas. 60 plus percent of those individuals actually came here legally, but then overstayed the visa. So a wall isn't going to help. If the governor can go up to D.C., the current one, and have big fundraisers, with the DC folks. Why isn't he going up there and advocating and pounding on every door up there about immigration? Because even though they're undocumented, they're residing in Texas and undocumented individuals, they're essential to our economy. They add more money to our economy than they use. It is an out and out lie for people to go around and say that they're coming over the border coming into Texas, and all they do is mooch off the government. They're coming here for a better life, and they're coming here and they're working. As governor, if when the question's asked, what are you going to do? It's going to D.C. and banging on every single representative and senator's door until we get something done. And you have to holler, you have to yell and scream, you go to the media, and you put it at the forefront so that they start having to answer why they haven't done anything in 30 plus years. You get on the news and you get on media, whether it's print or television, wherever, whoever will listen, you scream until someone starts listening. And that's what you have to do. And that's how you represent. You still have to represent individuals who are here undocumented. They're living in Texas. They're contributing to our economy. They may be undocumented, but as governor, I'm still there to represent them. And we need need to come up with a compassionate and clear policy to provide them citizenship in the United States. As far as sanctuary cities go, local entities need to decide how best to deal with the undocumented individuals in their city, their town, their village. And it's the police force 
They were against this whole idea of doing away with sanctuary cities because they feel that it is making it harder on them to represent and work with the population that is here that is undocumented. You know, they have to build the relationships. Our men in uniform and women in uniform, they're the ones on the streets. And we need to not get in their way. We need to allow them to do their job. And I felt and feel that what the legislature did was get in the way. They put up a barrier. And again, government is not here to put up barriers in people's lives. Government is here to take down barriers so people can succeed. And rather than putting up this barrier, why didn't they spend this time working with the federal government, kicking and screaming and saying, you need to do something about this. So you've mentioned a few times the failures of the current governor. How much were you motivated to run by his failures? If he had actually been doing his job, I wouldn't be motivated. I mean, someone's doing their job, you don't have to, then you like them and you like what they're doing. His failures and those of Dan Patrick, our lieutenant governor, was a huge motivator because I, I have friends who are undocumented. I know people who are undocumented and they're scared to death. I know many individuals who are transgender. To see them actually start crying about the bathroom bill, them having to hear their representatives talk, speak about how it's a mental illness and knowing how that affects them. These are people I know and these are people I love and care for. And yet the people that represent us speak about people that I know, people in my community, people in my city, in my state, to speak about them that way, that was a huge motivator. Our governor represents everyone. You don't get to discriminate against someone because you're looking to rile up your base or make your donor happy, your donors happy. That's not how you do government. That is not how you run government and that is not how you lead. Watching him quasi-lead is what motivated me to say, you know what, enough's enough. So what was the moment you knew you wanted to run? I had been speaking to my husband Sergio about this for about a year. And we had said 2022 was when I would run. We would wait four years. Last November happened. Then the regular session here in the state happened. And then when the special session happened, I kept thinking, no, now's the time. Now's the time. But Sergio and I had already decided we'd wait four years. And one night Sergio came home. He just walked in. He said, I know what you've been thinking. I know you haven't told me, but I know what you've been thinking. And I'm in it. So we can't wait four years. So run now. And I thanked him and said, all righty, here we go. And that was the moment that we made the decision. But it was actually Sergio that came in and said, I know what you're thinking. I know what's on your mind. Because uh, I would not do this without the support of my husband. What were your greatest concerns going in? My greatest concerns, how people would treat Sergio. And that's always my greatest concern is how, what would they say about Sergio? How would they go after Sergio? My whole thing is this, I'm the candidate, throw everything in the kitchen sink at me, but do not attack my family. So what advice would you give to millennials hoping to run for office? Do it. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen a more motivated group. 
as we've traveled the state. You know, millennials are passionate. And it's a passion that I haven't seen in a long time. And I absolutely adore it. They're fighting for their rights. They're fighting for their own future. But my advice to them would be, if you want to run, run. You know, put your team together and get out there and let your voice be heard. Be prepared. Make sure you have a good team together. Make sure you have confidants. You know the direction that you have a path to win. Even if it's a long shot. I mean, look at me. I'm a long shot. We, run, we understand that. We're in a red state. Democrats haven't won a statewide office in, I believe it's 24 years. But don't let that stop you. Keep going. If it doesn't happen for you in you know, 2018, do it again in 2020. But keep after it because it will happen. Fight. And that's what they're doing. And I have to be honest with you, it's refreshing to see that. It truly is. How can folks get involved with your campaign? Oh, in a hundred million ways. <laughs> One, you can go to jeffreyfortexas.com, sign up for our mailing list, invite your friends to like us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram so that they can keep up with where we're going and what we're doing. And if we're in their neck of the woods, you know, come out and ask the questions and be a part of the process so that when you turn around and leave a rally or when you turn around and leave a community forum, you're more informed so that you can speak with other people with the confidence of knowing exactly what our stances are. And that's what we need, just more people talking. And at times I have to kind of think, Texas isn't as red a state as people think. We're truly a non-voting state. You know, we just had our constitutional amendments about a week and a half ago. And I believe the state, uh, the registered voters had 6.2% participation. That's horrendous. But that's the battle we're up against is motivating people to do it, to get out there and get involved. But as far as getting with our campaign, visiting our website, signing up for the newsletter, signing up on all the other social media and signing up to volunteer so that you can assist us with phone banking or door knocking or helping us at events when we go have our rallies, you know, being a part of that and speaking with more people. So that's how you they can help. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Of course, Jordan. I truly appreciate you. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I hope we're able to do it again after March 6th when we win the primary. I have to go all the way to next November. So anytime you'd like to speak or catch up, just let me know. Yeah, absolutely. That would be amazing. Again, this is Jeffrey Payne, Democratic candidate for governor of Texas, and I'm Jordan Valerie, editor-in-chief of Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter, at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co, and tune in for the next episode of our podcast, where I'll be speaking with civil rights attorney and candidate for Indiana's 9th Congressional District, Dan Cannon. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.